Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo, and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre, and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips, and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story, or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. John Birmingham freelanced as a journalist for 10 years, taking feature commissions from a wide variety of magazines such as Playboy, Rolling Stone and even the Long Bay Prison News. His first book, He Died with a Falafel in His Hand, was a cult comedy success, which went on to be filmed by indie director Richard Lowenstein and was adapted for the stage. The play became the longest-running non-musical production in Australian history. John also wrote Leviathan, the unauthorised biography of Sydney, which won the National Award for Nonfiction in 2002. John is now writing techno-thrillers, starting with Weapons of Choice in 2004, Designated Targets in 2006, and the third in the trilogy of The Axis of Time, Final Impact. John is working on a new series of thrillers for Delray and Pan Macmillan and continues to file regular articles as a full-time columnist, blogger and essay writer. John lives with his family in Brisbane. John, thanks for joining us today. Oh, happy to come in, mate. <laughs> so tell us, when did you know you wanted to become a writer? Um, look, I, I couldn't give you the exact date, but I, I do recall when I was um, very young, like still in school, possibly primary school, I used to um, sit up quite late at night, you know, writing stories. Uh, uh, for a long time, I used to actually just copy out stories that I, I liked, trying to... Um, figure out how they work, just do them like word for word. Really? Yeah. yeah it was, um, I think I donated some of those books to the State Library in New South Wales a couple of years ago. I was very fond of the um, the John O'Grady books, which mm. were um, uh, humorous novels that came out in the 1960s and dealt with a lot of, a lot of issues like uh, migration. And um, he wrote them under the, the name Nino Colotta at the time, the famous old Australian books. And, I liked them so much when I was um, in my early teens, possibly even 12 years old, that I used to sit up at night just writing out line after line, par after par, trying to figure out how it was that um, O'Grady made it all work. Mm. And so you then decided to go into journalism first, is that right? No, I sort of... um, I did an arts degree, and when I finished the degree, I I went off to Canberra to um, pay off the... The loans are quite small loans compared to the sort of debt burdens kids leave mm. now. Um, but you know, for me, it was a reasonable sum of money because I, you know, a bit of a lazy slug. I'd never had a job before, so um, I went off to Canberra and I worked as a researcher with Defence for a year, and um, I quite enjoyed the the work down there. I was doing some quite interesting stuff, but I really did not enjoy being a public servant and you know, having to turn up at an office and shave every day and all that stuff that normal grown-up people just get on with. I just found it just intolerable. So um, after about a year of that, I left. I would have been about um, 
22, I think, something like that, 22, 23, and I just decided, you know, I was going to have a crack at writing for a living. Mm-hmm. And I you know, basically stuck with it ever after. I, I had a very brief period where I sort of panicked um, and thought, oh, gosh, no, I could end up being one of those terrible hippies who used to find hanging around the, the sort of fringe press student magazines and, and street mags and so on, you know, sort of coming in in their sandals and little string bags with you know, badly typed out pages about, you know, international government conspiracies. The only place they could get them, you know, possibly published was, you know, in these dreadful little street mags because yeah. the conspiracy wouldn't allow them to write anywhere else. And I just said, oh, God, no, I don't want to be like that. So I think for about six months um, I went and, and studied law, but... Um, that, you know, that was my my sort of return to conventional living, and uh, it was just very obvious that I wasn't cut out for it. So I, um, I sucked it up and, and went back and wrote, knowing there would be a very good chance I'd get into my forties and uh, would suffer materially for the the decision to write. Do you remember at all your first um, commission, or you know, when you decided? I to... remember my very first. Uh, Paid story. Yeah. Um, it was for a student magazine called Semper at the University of Queensland. Yeah. Um, I went in there because I'd, I'd heard that they paid for stories. And they <laughs> so much. It was like $10 or $15, so 3,000 words. Um, and I was going to write a story about late-night greasy eating joints in Brisbane. And there was like three of them in those days, and I intended to do a piece about them. Um, but I became distracted because uh, we had a big party. We sent a couple of friends off overseas, and one of my flatmates um, at that point, who I write about in Falafel later on, was a um, he was a terrible bastard for spending all of his money on drugs and prostitutes. And uh, having drunk half a keg of beer at this party, he decided that was exactly what he was going to do. And we just ended up this riotous night where we went through a bunch of illegal casinos and brothels and. I woke up on the floor of some place called um, the House of the Rising Sun. Mm-hmm. I've done the shag pile there, and mm-hmm. I'd had this massive night. With, you know, I've managed to get through spending only a buck thirty because that was what I had in my pocket when I started. And uh, I thought, oh, you know, that's a much more interesting story than you know, late night greasy eating joints in Britain. So I wrote that out, about two thousand words, and one of the editors at the Student Magazine loved it. One of them actually hated it, hated it with a passion and scrawled in, in big blue editor's pen up the top, you know, this is nasty, sexist rubbish. Right. marks. And um, that first story, I think, is actually available at uh, Macquarie, uh, sorry, at um, uh, State Library in um, Macquarie Street in New South Wales. Right. And, um, yeah, that was my, my first published piece, 15 bucks. We, we spent about $6,000 doing the... Uh, Research. That's <laughs> all right. I get paid fifteen to write it up. Well, you spent many years and many houses um, getting the material for. He died with the falafel in his hand, which mm. you know was a huge, huge book. Um, how did you? When and how did you think? Oh, I'm going to turn these experiences into a book. You know, I guess it was a collection of tales before. Yeah, that. look, it was. I didn't do share housing intending to write about it. I did it because I was poor. Um, <laughs> And uh, I 
Got to, um, I, I was living in a, a share house in Sydney, in Darlinghurst, which features quite heavily in the book. Mm. And um, at that point, I started to do a lot more work for magazines. I never intended to write books. All I ever wanted to do was write features and mags. Mm. And that was my first love as a writer. And actually, I still would be quite happy just doing that. Mm. Um, but uh, I was working full-time freelance from a magazine called The Independent Monthly, and um, which was a great, great mag through the late 80s, early 90s. And um, I just came in one day. It was, I just, you know, the stink of death. It was everywhere. And the mag was obviously going to go down. Right. And I spoke to Michael Duffy, who was a News Limited columnist now, but was the deputy editor there. And I said, well, it's just the stink of death. I smell Michael. And he nodded grimly. <clears throat> I said, look, I'm setting up a publishing company. Um, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> my reaction to this, do you reckon you could um, give me a quick book, a stocking stuffer for Christmas? And I, at that point, I said, oh, look, i got a few flatmate stories. <laughs> together. And he said, well, write me out a sample chapter. So I, the first chapter in Falafel was the sampler that I wrote for Michael. And he said, oh, look, that looks all, that looks all right. Have we got enough for a book? I said, oh, Maybe. <laughs> Let's see. So he, he gave me a five-week deadline. And, um, wow. I went over and uh, knocked it off. Five weeks? Five weeks, mate, yeah, because we, um, we had to get it out for that Christmas. So I just I sat down. I, I approached it very much like a, a commission for a magazine. Yeah. You know, a 50,000-word commission. Yeah. And, um, I just wrote out the names of everybody I could ever remember living with and uh, began to contact them one after the other and, you know, <clears throat> interviewed them about, um, you know, their experiences living with me, but also, you know, experiences they'd had in, in other share houses and just transcribed those interviews very, very quickly. Mm. And then it was really just a matter of cutting and pasting. Um, I had, you know, 60, 70,000 words worth of transcript and reading through it, it became very obvious very quickly that there were only half a dozen share house stories that were that there were infinite variations on those themes. Mm. Flatmate, bad flatmate, dirty flatmate, etc. And so the the book then began to organise itself thematically and uh, and it actually was written very quickly. It was about five weeks. I had a lot of help. I had a friend um, Howard Stringer, who was uh, he was a staff writer at Inside Sport at that point, mm. and um, he was a he was actually my very first editor. He was the guy that commissioned that piece uh, that was published in Semper. Um, it should have been about Greasy Eats, but turned out to be a about a big night on the tiles. Mm. Um, and so he Howard would go off to Inside Sport every day and write his sports stories, and then he'd come home at night and I'd give him you know, five or 6,000 words worth of copy, which he would edit and hand back to me. And it was just, just this constant sort of rolling hell to <laughs> get the thing together for, um, for publication. And I guess that's the thing when you're used to being a journalist, you're used to having deadlines. You, so, yeah, you are. You are. And it's just we I, – I have never been that concerned about um, book deadlines. Like occasionally um, I, I had to – pay back a bunch of money to Random House a couple of years ago because I signed a bunch of book deals just before um, we had our first kid and I had absolutely no idea what a shattering effect that would have on my, my work habits and right. just my ability to get to the keyboard. Mm. 
and after a couple of years of just not getting to the keyboard enough to, to write these books, so I just rang Jane Palfrey and said, look, forget it. This is embarrassing. I'm just never going to write these books. Let's face facts. So right. I set them back there in advance and, um, uh, and just began to rejig my, my working day because um, I had to build it around the fact that you know, quite a lot of my, my work life, or my, you know, what would have been my work life was now, about wrangling children, so mm-hmm. um, I tended to do a lot less feature writing um, because the thing about a book is that you know you do get maybe two or three years to write it, and um, particularly with school age kids, it doesn't really matter if you lose a week here or there for holidays or, or illness because you've got that long lead time to plan that kind of some. Um, uh, Downtime in, and with columns which I write uh, a lot these days, mm. three or four a week, um, it doesn't matter again if you suddenly find yourself with kids on hand or underfoot because you could always just, you know, distract them for an hour or so and get a column written. Mm. But with features, um, you just you can't do it. Uh, a good feature is three to four thousand words. Mm. You know? at least a week's work, and that's intense work. That's, you know, not squeezing it in when you can between school drop-offs and pick-ups and supervising homework and running them to and from, you know, after-school sports. That's getting up at 6 or 7 in the morning, possibly travelling. I had to... um, I was just thinking this morning, actually, I was knocked back some sweet, sweet commissions. (laughs) And I remember once being up at the school to uh, pick Thomas up from um, from prep, I think it was, and my mobile rang, it was Wheels magazine, and I said, have you got your passport? I said, yes. I said, it's currently, yeah, it is. Well, can you get on a flight to Las Vegas um, tomorrow morning? There's a new Porsche coming out, and we want you to test drive it. Oh, my God. Los Angeles, we've got a five-star hotel room for you there. We will need the copy really quickly. That's why they were calling me because I, yeah. you know, I could generate it quickly. Yeah. We said, you know, we've booked the room for four days, but if we can get the copy back from you in two days, we'll pay you straight away and you can keep the hotel room for yourself. And it was just a silence. I said, look, that's a great, that's a great gig, but um, I'm doing a school pickup <laughs> the rest of the week. And, uh, Your life has changed considerably since the days of falafel. <laughs> Yeah, so that's right. So I just, um, yeah, I, I, I now work very, very differently from um, those early days. Mm. So you, that, that obviously was a non-fiction, you know, book, um, mm. and then you had Leviathan, which mm. obviously was non-fiction, and you, you've, you've got your background in non-fiction feature writing. Then you went into writing techno-thrillers. Mm. Um, how did that happen? By accident, mate. I, um, I... Was I actually I signed up that bunch of books for random that uh, I mentioned earlier, and that was what I intended to do for the following three or four years because I had like five titles to to get through. Some of them were going to be very easy to put together, and some of them I just had no idea what I was doing when I signed the contracts because I, I had no idea what parenthood was about to do to my my working life. Uh, one was a book about um, a bayonet charge increase in the Second World War. And the entire book was going to be about the 30 seconds of this charge and, you know, the lives of the men who were in it and, you know, how it affected them should they have survived. And, I, you know, I would have to have gone to Crete and lived there for two or three months. And, and I just, you know, 
it's just not the sort of thing you can do when you've suddenly got a um, uh, a new kid underfoot. So mm. I sort of was looking for you know some way of <clears throat> dealing with the fact that my working arrangements had obviously like changed and. Um, I was talking with Garth Nix, uh, uh, a band agent, but also a fantasy author, and um, we were just having a conversation about um, how much we loved, you know, dumb books, big dumb books and big dumb films. And <clears throat> I mentioned to Garth I once had uh, an idea for what, I, at that point, I was calling the dumbest book ever written, um, which became Weapons of Choice, and uh, I had worked on it um, like an hour or so a day for a couple of months, when I was writing Leviathan, and I had done that as uh, a way of winding down at the end of the day. It was actually my idea of relaxation, just to play with this idea for a Tom Clancy slash Matthew Riley style mm. techno thriller. Mm. I never intended to show anybody, I never intended to publish it, but um, got very excited when I told him about it, and uh, he asked to look at it. And, and I gave it to him on the condition he didn't show it to anybody, but of course he did, and the next thing I knew, I had um, Americans on the phone demanding the finished manuscript, so God. before I knew it, I was an airport novelist. Yes. I was quite happy. I actually remained very uh, um, very much in Garth's debt for that, because uh, I do love um, that style of book. I love reading them, and I love writing them, of course. In, you know, they're a lot more lucrative than... Um, mm a book like Falafel, which will, well, sorry, not Falafel, like uh, Leviathan, which, although it paid off very well and won a lot of awards, that was four and a half years' worth of full-time work. to Research. Yeah, to deliver that manuscript. And um, you would have to make a lot of money off a book to make that uh, you know, a viable gig uh, when you're using it to you know, keep a roof over your head and feed kids, as I suddenly was. So well, these books obviously would require a considerable amount of research as well. Mm. Do you do that before you start writing, during or after, and, you know, just write the stuff out first and fill in the bits later? How do you work that? It depends on the book. Like sometimes if I know that I have a, um, like a big set piece um, narrative thread or scene that I need to, to research, I'll usually do that research before the book starts mm. um, simply because it will then help how the, the book becomes framed um, in its early drafts. Uh, but I find that as you, you go through a book, um, inevitably, when you're writing these things, because you're writing about stuff that's happening on the far side of the world, and I've never been to half the places I write about, but the, the beauty of doing these things nowadays, as opposed to, say, 10 or 15 years ago, is that you can just hop online instantly and, you know, a couple of keystrokes, you're in Google Earth. And mm -hmm. that one nowadays, if you're doing a place that has street view, you can actually walk through the virtual environment and um, you don't need to spend, you know, weeks and thousands of dollars travelling there to check it all out. You mm -hmm. can do stuff online, you can, you know, consult uh, online sources such as Wikipedia if you trust it. Um, I have uh, a subscription to a, a full-text library in the US, which I use. I've digitised a, a lot of um, academic work, which is you know, generally very, um, very, very creditable, and you, know, you can you can use it and, and not expect to come a cropper when the thing comes out. So mm. I tend to do as much work as I can before I start the book, but it is inevitable that uh, you will 
keep researching as you go through because you'll just you know you, you want to write something and um, nowadays there's almost no excuse for getting it wrong and mm. because mm. I do make myself available online like I have a couple of blogs and I'm, I'm quite happy for people to you know come and meet me in the virtual world I, I have found that you know they're more than happy to to do that but they often come with a long list of things I got wrong. <laughs> and, you know, you should fix these up before the next edition of the book comes out. So. Um, tell us about uh, why you decided to write Don't Land. Uh, well, in fact, that was Random's idea. I had come off Leviathan like four and a half years of really intense PhD-level research. Like, yeah. I was in State Library for um, you know, 10, 11 hours a day, mm. um, five days a week, and then again for half a day on um, on most weekends and it was you know, it was a lot harder than anything I'd ever done at university. I tended to breeze through uni and skipped a lot of my classes and you know, just asked my way through most of the assessment. But with this there was no pretending. Um, I had to actually do it properly because I was trespassing on academic turf and I was going to be torn to pieces if I got it wrong. So mm. um it, it, yeah, I had to spend a lot of time uh, getting it right. Mm. Well, that's a piece of history now. It is, yeah. In fact, I, I'm rewriting it at the moment. I'm um, really, yeah, I am. I said it's coming up for its tenth anniversary next year, and I did, uh, I did rush it to um, uh, to get it out before the games. I wanted to write a chapter about the the city's aesthetic history, um, and I just didn't have time. And it, it actually unbalanced the final text because Leviathan is a much darker story than I originally intended it to be um, because I was going to use that chapter on the aesthetic history as a, a bit of balance towards the end, but um, you know, the game's wound and have to get out. So um, I'm in the process of, of doing that at the moment. Um, but anyway, yeah, there was a huge amount of work involved and when I finished it I was just exhausted and I met Jane Coffrim and oh, I think we met up the cross in a pub one night mm. and she just said, you know, look at you, you poor old sausage, you're dead on your feet, why don't you um, why don't you write us a fun book mm-hmm. next time? And so she suggested that uh, I do Dopeland and um, it was actually, you know, looking back on it, it sounds like a great idea but it was about three months before Anna was born, our first child, and it was just such the wrong, so, so, so wrong to right. be on a project like that at that point. Because, yeah, of course, yeah. then I had to bugger off and travel around the country hanging out with dope dealers and smoke their wares. And um, it was it was really a book I should have done a year or two earlier. Mm. It's funny because I guess it's because you wrote... Um, Leviathan, I I have always associated you with as a very Sydney kind of mm. author, and now you're living in Brisbane. Yes, I am. Look, I still think of myself as a very Sydney kind of author, particularly yeah. since I'm in the process of rewriting Leviathan. Um, you know, I've written a lot about Sydney, not just in that book, but yeah. I, I tended to be the guy that you know magazine editors and newspaper people come to when they they want some copy on Sydney, and yeah. I have at times written quite long essays. I, I did one for a, um, a travel book that was nearly 10,000 words. So uh, I, I do, in my heart of hearts, I still think of myself as a, you know, a Sydney-based writer, even though I'm a thousand miles away. 
Um, so why are you there? <laughs> well, it's just, again, uh, parenthood. You know, we I had a beautiful little apartment at um, Bondi, and mm. it was fantastic. You know, it was an old Art Deco place, nicely restored. It was a minute and a half from the edge of the beach, but it was um, two-bedroom Sydney apartment. Mm-hmm. It was doable when we had one kid, but as soon as uh, Thomas rolled in, it was just unworkable. And um, I had bought a house in Brizzy, um a couple of years previous uh, as an investment and never really intending to live there, but you know, once it became obvious that you know Sydney with children was a very different proposition from Sydney with our kids, then I thought, oh, look, you know, I've got that house up in Brisbane. More importantly, I had a lot of relatives up here, a lot of uncles, aunts and parents, oh, right. and that made, um, that made a huge difference because we did five years of parenthood without any of that support around and it broke our spirits like dry twigs. So, um, wow. yeah, eventually we just, you know, we just said, no, nah, let's, let's go back up to, um, go back up to Brisbane. But mm. uh, it's funny, I, I'm actually just, uh, I was talking to somebody the other day um, from a, an architect, uh, architectural um, firm. I was talking about my uh, kitchen, which has this big sort of, Window, a big sliding window in it, which creates a sort of inside-outside bench space. It's just from the architect guys going, oh, this is fascinating. I said, this is stolen from Gusto Deli at Bondi, which is where I used to go for breakfast every morning after my surf at Bondi every morning. And I missed it so much that when we um, redid the house, I said to the architect, I'd like you to recreate that for me here. A little so bit of Sydney least, in Brisbane. Yeah, so the, the, the Gusto Deli is recreated out on the front deck of my my house up here in Britain. So you do, you know, non-fiction, fiction, blogging, columnist. Do you have to, is it easy to switch hats between the, the different styles? Do you have to get into a particular groove before you do the thrillers or anything like that? Um, look, it's, it's easy now. Uh, it wasn't easy when I started switching, um, or at least it wasn't easy with books. With magazines... You know, I worked in mags for 10 years. I freelanced for 10 years before I wrote Falafel. And, of course, every magazine has its its house style and it has the, the different kinds of things that it's interested in. So, you know, a story for Inside Sport is going to be very different um, to a story for Rolling Stone, both of whom I, I worked for. And um, so switching between them was no trouble at all. But uh, the move from writing comic novels, like, Leviathan, like Falafel and uh, and Tassie Babes, to writing Leviathan, I found very difficult because part of writing Leviathan was about escaping, you know, the gravity well which had suddenly built up around Falafel as it became really successful. Um, but I I just had a lot of trouble in the early drafts settling on a voice, and I actually remember having a long talk with. Um, it wasn't Jane, it was somebody else quite senior at uh, at random about how I handle it, like how I would settle into a voice. And now it, it wouldn't bother me at all. I, mean, I know exactly what I'd do. Um, but back then, yeah, it was it was a bit of a bit of a challenge. Mm. So what are you working on right now? What are you writing right now? Um, right now I've got the rewrite of Leviathan. I've got a um a sequel to uh, Without Warning, uh, which I'm supposed to deliver in about two months. 
It'll be some late nights, let me tell you. Um, might even see Santa. I'll be up so late on Christmas Eve. And um, uh, they're my two big book projects. I'm also looking at uh, some TV work next year. Um, and Writing or have, appearing? Um, a bit of both, mm-hmm. actually. Uh, we'll see whether that comes off, though. I tend not to get excited about TV projects because... Unlike books, you rely on a lot of other people to mm. make them happen. So, whereas with a book, I just sit down with a keyboard and you know we're done. Hopefully, six <laughs> to twelve months later. Yeah. Um, and I have a big, uh, a big non-fiction work for Picador that um, I need to start putting in the big hits on. So, um, it's it's busy. Can you tell us about that? Or yeah, it's a um, it is a history of fear and. Courage. Wow. And uh, it's yeah, it's something I've been messing around with for years, and was originally looking at doing for, for Random House until mm. um, you know, I sort of crashed into the brick wall of early parenthood. And, um, but I've just just the last year or so have, have got to a place with the you know the kids at school where I've got a little bit more of my working day back, and I figured I could take it on again. And it is a project though. I've wanted to do for quite some time. So is, do you have a writing routine now? Is there actually some kind of pr- process in order to your writing day? Oh, there is, because my writing day is quite short. Um, oh. You know, it's, I, I don't get to the desk until about 9 o'clock, and then I, I um, have to wrap it up by quarter to 3. Um, right, yes. <laughs> and to actually get the amount of work done that I need to get done in that time um, involves uh, a lot of stopwatch activity. Like I just mm-hmm. actually have a little stop which I keep by the the computer. Really? It goes on and I just type for two hours. It goes off. I get a cup of tea and I stretch and um, I do another two hours and then stopwatch goes beep, beep, beep. Which wow. is that it's lunchtime. So I have a bit of lunch. Um, on a hot day like today, I might even have a swim after that just to wake myself up. And then I've got about an hour after lunch, before I can, uh, sorry, before I have to go pick up the the kids, and in that hour, I will often write rather than book work. I'll often do a poem or something like that. Right, it's um, it, very very disciplined. Well, it has to be yeah. because I, I just I one of the, the things I enjoyed about writing when I started doing it was the way you could do it any time you wanted to. So mm. I did. I I wasn't that. Um, that well uh, ordered in my time management and so you know I, I would waste an awful lot of time um, I just I don't have that time to waste anymore so mm. it's believe me it's, it's not my natural uh, working routine <laughs> it's, um, it's just being imposed on me by reality <laughs> by maturity by, <laughs> by unlike bullet maturity it <laughs> doesn't feel like it to me <laughs> Um, have you got, uh, can you paint us a picture in five years, like what, what kind of combination of books do you think you'll be writing then and you know, what do you want to be writing more of or trying that's new? Look, um, I think as far as books go, uh, it will just be a reasonably linear development from where I am now. I will have at least one serious, humorous, hardback pointy-headed non-fiction work on the go and I will have at least one or two um, thrillers mm. because you know, I've built up quite a big audience for those, particularly overseas. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to um, 
to kick on with that. In fact, I'm touring the US in February for the release of um, Without Warning over there, and you know, I'm very excited about that because mm. we've been to the US and published there for years, but without ever setting foot on the really on the deck. So um, I will very much look forward to that. Um, but I suppose if there was one not new thing, but uh, old thing I wouldn't mind going back to. I'd quite like to write a, another comic novel. Um, mm. Mm. But, you know, get a lot of... I do a lot of joke writing in my, my blogs and columns, but of course they're ephemeral. Like, you know, mm. they've evaporated within 24 hours of them being published. So I, I like the, um, the solidity of books, you know, the mm. way that they're done. You know, they're done and, you know, you could lay hands on one 300 years down the track if, uh, uh, if you were very lucky. Um, I think I, I yeah. still have my copy of Falafel here <laughs> somewhere. Yeah, oh, that's right. I've got books here. I'm actually sitting in front of my um, my library at home at the moment, and I've got some. You know, I've got a copy of Gibbon's Decline and Fall, which is about 120 years old, mm. and um, I've got some, like, you know, Thucydides, which looks like it's about 200 years old. So, you know, as artifacts, they survive in a way that digital publishing simply won't. Um, so yeah, I <clears throat> I would like to do a a comic novel, and I I have one in mind. So we'll we will see. Well, we'll look forward to it. And and finally, what advice would you give to aspiring writers? Lots of reading, lots and lots of reading while you still have the time to do it, and um, and then work in two hour blocks. <clears throat> nothing beats it, mate. Nothing, nothing beats a stopwatch. <laughs> It was actually a, a, an artist who taught me that. He, he worked by stopwatch, and it's completely unromantic, but it does get the work done. Perfect. And on that note, thank you very much for your time today, John. No worries. You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.